Look at the next step Jesus took with his disciples. We learned last Sunday that Jesus got introduced by John the Baptist as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the religious leaders did not understand it. The people who followed him initially did not understand it. But he made that profound statement, John the Baptist, that Jesus did not come to take the rightful place as the king of the Jews yet. But he comes as the Lamb of God. It's actually amazing that it is still a discussion today among theologians. You know, has he come? Is he coming again? Has he never come? Uh, will he come only once? Uh, all the great discussions. I think the Bible is very clear. How many of you know Jesus did come? Jesus did pay the price. Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why you and I have life and life more abundantly. This morning we're going to look at, after this discussion on Jesus was introduced as the Lamb of God, John goes right to the next step following Jesus, and we find it in chapter 2, for obvious reasons, because that's the next chapter. And we're going to read the first few verses, and then I introduce you to the title of my sermon and why. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. I believe that's the greatest advice anyone ever gave. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And then the guests, when the guests have well drunk, then that which is, is furious. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. We stop right there. There are actually in the second chapter two of those miraculous things, signs Jesus did. The Apostle John always calls it signs because those signs have a very, very great significance. We're going to look at that later on in a, uh, in a few minutes here. But signs are simply something that point towards if you are on the road, down the, you're driving down the road, and you don't know where to go, and you would have no GPS system in your car, you probably would look at a sign. Well, the sign is not your destination. The sign just points you towards your destination. 
So this is the same thing here in the Bible. The sign points towards a destination. Don't look at the sign. People always get very excited about the sign or the wonder or the miracle God did. And they go, oh, this is awesome. You know, I would like him to do these kind of things for me as well. But they're only pointing towards something. And so we're going to learn this morning that Jesus did this one. Later on, he went to the temple at Jerusalem because the feast was at hand. And there he didn't do just a little sign. There he did something else. And we're going to learn what Jesus did when he got there. This time, he saw all the activities that's going on in the temple. And that actually was outside the Holy of Holies. That was in the temple courtyard. And he watched all the busyness that's going on. And who will not be happy today in the churches when it's busy? The busier it is, the bigger, the more support the church has, and the more successful the church is. Well, the Temple Mount was very, very, very busy. But Jesus didn't want to have anything to do with it. Everything has changed in about 18 years of time. This time when Jesus shows up in the Temple, those guys have commerce going on in the Temple Mount. Prior, 18 years before, according to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, we can quickly turn there, verses 46 to 50. Jesus, when he went with his mom and dad every year to the feast, as was custom for these Jewish people to do, he found an entirely different environment. It says in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 and following, now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, that's Jesus, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Listen, there were discussions going on about the word of the living God when Jesus was there when he was 12 years old. The religious leaders were busy trying to answer Old Testament questions. The word of God was at that time still the center of what's going on in the temple with all the sacrifices they had to do. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? In other words, Jesus said, I am going among the religious leaders which you have raised up. I'm listening to them asking questions. That's, my, that's the Father's business. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. When I read that this week, I had to think quickly how quickly a church, which is the building where God's people come together, or in this particular case, a temple, has changed from an exposition of the word of God to a marketplace. Just like this. It took 18 years. And I wonder what Jesus would do today in most churches if he would visit them. I really wonder. Had already happened then. But before we go into the details on the importance of it, I want to bring you back to what we just read and go back and visit that wedding in Cana of Galilee. This is a sign which Jesus did. And the sign is the sign of a new wine. I know there's going to be a lot of discussions here this morning. Is it wine? Is it grape juice? Well, let the Bible speak for itself. Every miracle, my friend, every sign Jesus performed during his entire ministry on this earth 
was done with a very specific purpose. God never does anything without a purpose, a very specific purpose. And in this case, the Apostle John is revealing to us that Jesus did this sign and the miracle, not for his own sake, but to point to something very significant. Have you ever looked at the English word significant? I put it up for you. It's just coincidence, correct? Just accidents. If you love linguistics, you can see how God hides the most important thing in the very language he gives us. A sign is significant, very significant. The question is, what's the significance of it all? Well, you could say, it's terrible when you run out of food. It's more terrible when you run out of wine. In those days, when somebody put up a wedding, everybody was invited. Not just family, the whole town. The problem was, the bridegroom never knew exactly how many showed up. And I probably would interpret it also, if it was a very warm day, they were thirstier than usual. One thing we know for sure, the bridegroom was well prepared for this wedding feast, and something happened. We know that. Jesus and his disciples and Jesus' mother were invited, so they must have probably known that family. So they go also, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the great celebration, by the way, a Jewish wedding celebration took place up to seven days. So it's not just a one deal, you know, like we. Come and eat and leave, because that's all I can afford. No, they had seven-day feasts, and people came and went on having a good time. And for a Jewish family putting on a wedding feast and running out of anything was one of the greatest embarrassments they could have had, because the whole town, all they could talk afterwards is that they were not well prepared for that feast. And so it was not like, well, I'm just moving out of town and forget about it. These people stayed there for the lifetime. So it was crucial that they had all the necessary food and wine in this particular case. Seems like, according to John, they never ran out of food. But they did run out of wine. My question would be, why did God choose a wedding for his son to perform his first sign down here on earth? You would say it's significant, isn't it? It's not by accident. Why did God at that wedding turn water into wine? Why didn't he turn it into grape juice? He could have done that too. But why wine? Well, we can look at the conversation in verses 3 and 4. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Seems like somebody communicated to Mary that they ran out of wine. I don't think that Mary was a wine bibber, and she just found out, I got the twelfth time to the spigot, and there's nothing coming. I better tell my son because I'm thirsty. I don't think that's the case. I think somebody, probably the bridegroom or the family of the bridegroom, came to Mary and said, we have a huge problem. And since Jesus was just introduced a few weeks before in Nazareth in his hometown, which was not too far away from Cana, as the Messiah and the one who performs miracles, they expected him to do something. And so she just makes that remark. Son, 
Wir hatten Wein. Jesus adresse sie so Mutter mit diesen Worten. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Can you imagine that? Don't you think these are harsh words? Well, let me bring you back to the custom. You can't interpret the Bible unless you know the custom and to whom these words are being spoken to. In those days, the word woman was the highest respected name you gave to a lady. By the way, the same word Jesus spoke when he was hanging on the cross and he looked to John, the same apostle who wrote this gospel, and he saw his mother and he says, woman, same address. And then he looked to John and said, you take care of her. The highest respect. How many of you know languages do change? They constantly change. If you have been away for too long from youth, you don't know anymore what they talk. It's unbelievable the words they use. I don't know. I've been away from Switzerland for a long time, and then our friends or relatives come and visit. They speak a language. They think I'm archaic. I'm still using the old Swiss, and they think, long past, buddy. You have no idea how we talk now. The languages constantly change. Long and behold, that happens in the Bible too. The way somebody addresses somebody. So this address, woman, is a very highly respected word in those days. But he says something else that maybe gives us a little bit, uh, oh, what did he say? What does your concern have to do with me? Wouldn't you say that's a little bit disrespectful? What does your concern have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. In other words, Jesus says to her in plain language, Mother, this is not my problem. That's what he says. That's how he interpret it. This is not my problem. In reality, Jesus is pointing to the fact that Mother is not the one from whom he is going to take direction. Listen carefully. Jesus just started his ministry. And the first thing that happens is his mother tries to tell him that he should do something, turn something, water into wine or whatever, just somehow provide wine. Jesus says, I am not here for that purpose. My purpose is to do the Father's will. Later on, he says, you cannot even be my disciple if you cannot forsake your mother and father and brothers and sisters and houses and all the things. Because the reason is not that they are bad. The reason is when you and I become a born-again believer, we are going to get our marching orders from God Almighty and from nobody else. And when the church should recognize that again, when you are filled with the spirit of the living God, God speaks to you. Your marching orders do not come from a denomination. Your marching orders do not come from a church leader. Your marching orders come from God Almighty. And Jesus looks at Mary and says, Mary, this is not my concern. When the Father speaks to me, I'll do it. But if the Father doesn't tell me, I'm not doing it. Mary immediately understood. And she did, she did the wisest thing anyone can ever do. Look what she says. She looks at the servants and said, 
Whatever he says to you, do it. How many would have to say, that's wise counsel? Whatever God tells you to do, remember Jesus is representing God the Father here on earth. Whatever he says, do it. In other words, when he says, do nothing, do nothing. If he says, do something, do it. Probably in her mind, it backflashed on her what the angel Gabriel told her when she will conceive a son and he will be called the Most High. She probably recognized his time has come to be revealed. And so, very interestingly enough, Jesus does something about it. The Father must have given him the command. Later on, Jesus said, the son will do absolutely nothing unless the father tells him to do it. So the father steps in, and I could easily imagine Jesus standing there as he says this to the mother, and as he utters these words, God the father speaks to him and says, son, go for it. When he says the hour has not yet come, He's referring to the hour when the Father will be manifesting his glory through him. And if you want to understand that saying, you have to go to the Gospel of John, same Gospel, chapter 14, 15, 16, and you will find out how it gets there. And then in the 17th chapter, John records the prayer, Jesus prays, you remember that? And the entire prayer is about, Father, for this purpose have I come. I've done everything what you told me to do. I have lost nothing. Everything you told me, I've done. I'm done with the work down here on earth. Now, Father, glorify yourselves and share your glory with your Son again as it was before. It was all about God's glory. And Jesus said, my hour has not come to glorify the Father or to glorify me. It's not there yet. Mother, you got it wrong. And I wonder, when Jesus, the Son of God, playing the perfect man down here on earth, says that he cannot do anything unless the Father tells him, otherwise the Father is not being glorified, how can we in America try to command God around what we want to have done? To whom does that bring glory? It's quite a question. If we just go around and we name it and we claim it and we say in the name of the Father and we add it, at the end we just say in Jesus' name, how does that bring glory to God? It doesn't. It doesn't. Jesus said, I can't do a mom until the Father tells me. The hour has not yet come. But then he goes to action. Before we go there, I have a question for you. What would you have done in that situation, knowing that you do have the power to do it? What would you have done knowing you have the power to do it? I always say, it is not a miracle that Jesus did a miracle. It is a greater miracle that Jesus did not do the miracle when he could have done it, but knew it was not the Father's will. Jesus knew that the Spirit of God is upon me, and he just read it a few weeks before in the synagogue out of Isaiah for the very purpose to open up blinded eyes, to set the captives free, to set at liberty those who are captivated by Satan. He had all the power of heaven brought with him to earth to perform any miracle necessary, and yet he doesn't do it. What would you and I have done? 
Oh, yeah, you need that? Not a problem. Come on over here. I'll lay my hands on you. I have to look for you quickly. Uh uh-uh. That will glorify man, but not God. One day we will go to heaven. And I thought this week it was my time. And by the way, don't worry about it. I told the Lord, I am always ready to come home, Lord. Whenever is your time, I am ready to go. I was kind of excited, you know. I thought, let my wife have all the problems. That <laughs> was not nice. <laughs> How many of you have days when you just, you, you would think it would be a good day to go? This would be a good day to go. The day will come. But the Apostle Paul is telling us one day when we get there, all the things we've done, even in the name of Jesus, will be piled up in one big pile. And then the Holy Spirit will put his fire to it. And whatever was done in our way, not in his way, our way, will burn up like hay, wood, and stubble. And everything the Holy Spirit initiated to glorify God will be like precious stones left for his glory. No wonder Jesus didn't go for it. Great lesson to learn, isn't it? But there were six water pots of stone, the Bible says. These are these big earthen vessels, you know, the Jewish people have. And it says between 20 and 30 gallons because they had different kind of sizes. But for the ceremonial, Jewish ceremonial cleansing and washing, which they had to do before they went to a feast, they had to have these water pots. And obviously it must have been that these water pots were almost empty. And so Jesus looks at these water pots and says, oh, great idea. I take them. So he tells the servants of the wedding to go and fill them with water. He doesn't, has a wand, no such thing. He doesn't say a prayer. There's nothing recorded. He just tells them, go and fill these water pots with water. And they go, because his mother just told them, do whatever he tells you to do. So then they bring him back. The servants who did the carrying of the water pots had no idea what is going on. So he said, now bring it to the master of the ceremony, to the bride. And the master is taking the first ladle. And he goes, whoop, this is good stuff. This is really good stuff. And the discussion obviously goes, why did you hold back the best for last? Because normally, there's a little hint for you in there in the Bible, normally at feasts like this, they bring first the good until everybody is dizzy and drowsy and drunk, and then when they don't know anymore what they're drinking, then you can bring in the inferior. They wouldn't know the difference. Just ask a Jew how to do that. They know how to do it. The problem is, in American churches we say, that was never wine. That was grape juice. And you tell me when you get drunk from grape juice. And then I tell you what this means. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Jewish customs, the Jews never knew anything about grape juice. There's not a single word in the Bible about grape juice. Only wine. I can bring you all the way back to the time of Noah, you know. How did Noah get drunk? 
He just had a little bit too many grape juice. Really? How did all these people in the Jewish lineage got drunk? Because they fermented the wine or the grape juice and they turned into wine. Why does the Bible say that the wine makes the heart glad? You have a clue? Because if you have a little bit too much, you don't care about what the neighbor says. You know, your heart is glad no matter what. Now, let me explain to you. I do not advocate that you are going to start making your own vineyard and drink wine instead of eating something. That's not what I'm saying. But what I want to tell you is that God allowed the Jewish people in those days to have wine. And that at that wedding, they had wine. And the Son of God made about 100 gallons or 180 gallons of wine. Try to copy that just by filling water pots. He saved the bridegroom's well-being in that town for sure. The reputation and everything else that goes with it. But he also made a lot of people happy. He did. And he was the son of God. How many of you get sometimes tired of being so religious that you want to turn everything what the Bible says into something else because you don't want to believe it? It says what it says. I have no problem with it. And if you ever drink a good glass of wine to a good meal, you will not be thrown out of this church. Yeah. Honestly. Do you know why? I can't find it in the Bible. But if your conscience tells you you shouldn't drink it, then you drink it. You're sinning. And I normally don't drink it because I always tell the people, what if I feast with you and I drink a glass of wine, maybe two glasses of wine, and all of a sudden I get a phone call and I need to go and minister to somebody. These guys are falling over just by my breath alone. <laughs> what a kind of testimony would that be? Paul said there are certain things which is legal for me to do, but I don't do it. And that's something which you have to deal with. But we don't want to read into something just to twist it until it fits my pattern. Jesus turned 150 to 180 gallons of water into wine. That's just a fact. Why? Why did, why did he do that? I told you, it points towards a significant point. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke. You can read it for yourselves. Because this is powerful. Luke chapter 5. Verse 36. Then he spake a parable to them. How many of you know what a parable is? It's a story that gives you a spiritual truth, but you understand it because he uses earthly means to explain it. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. Today's people don't know that anymore. They just go to Kmart and buy a new piece of cloth. But then in the old days, they fixed them. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled on the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is 
better. Woe is there a lot in it. By the way, you can put as much grape juice into old wineskin and it will not burst. It has to go to a per, per, uh, uh, fermenting process before you see what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about grape juice. He's talking about real wine. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskin. What did Jesus do when he had the last supper with his disciples? He was holding the last cup, chalice. And what was in there? Wine. And what did he say? This is my blood. Speaking symbolically. This is my blood of the new covenant. Jesus is referring all the way back to Canaan. When he made that water into wine. When you and I become born again, spiritually speaking, we are new wineskin. You can't put the Holy Spirit in an unregenerate vessel. It will bust the vessel. It will ruin it. But when you become born again, a new wineskin, then the Holy Spirit, symbolism of wine, then the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you, not to bust you, but to fill you because you were meant to hold the Holy Spirit within you. That cannot happen until the new covenant was put into effect. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit whom the world cannot receive, but you have the Holy Spirit among you, but then he will be in you. That's what Jesus is referring to. So when he goes to Cana, he goes to that wedding, and he turns the water into wine. There's a lot of symbolism which we could discuss for a lengthy time because the Jews believed that if you go to the purification process, you are considered pure. And Jesus says, no, you can't do that. There's a new covenant coming. That's why I came. I'm going to turn that thing into wine. Because the real purification process is done on the cross. When he pays the price for you and me. Which Jesus sealed with his own blood. That's why he took that cup with the wine in it. At the day of Pentecost, uh, 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 Passover. When he did it and on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came just as promised. You say man that symbolism is man. I don't know if I can follow all these things, you know. How many of you know the New Testament is no New Testament and no good unless the blood of Jesus has been spilled for it? That's what Jesus means. It's important for us to see the significance of that. However, Jesus was really going because the Bible tells us that in verse 11, in chapter 2 of John, that's where I'm at again. This beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Listen, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Why? The Passover was at hand. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers doing business. If you have your Bible open, in the 14th verse, the key words in that entire story is in the temple. In the temple. These are the key words. You really don't get that unless you focus. He found them in the temple. Those people sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers were doing business. Question. Why were the money changers there, and why was the livestock there? For sacrifices. Nothing wrong with that then. Why is Jesus getting so angry? What happened? Remember 18 years before Jesus was there, and there was no such thing going on in there? If you read the historians, you will find out that the Jewish people sold all the sacrificial animals which they prepared because the people came from everywhere and they didn't want to take the animals with them. You know, they didn't have these big um, pickups with nice cattle trailers, you know, and just hauled it to Jerusalem and let it go and say, I bought my animal. You couldn't do that. So what you did is you traveled with the family and then you bought a priest-approved sacrificial animal. So you bought that. But that trade was going on in the Kidron Valley, across the Jordan River on the slopes of Mount of Olives. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people did business over there. For whatever reason, they thought it's more convenient to bring it right to the temple. And they put it in the courtyard. And that's when they overstepped the boundaries. That tells me a little bit where the Jewish nation was spiritually. If they really would have believed that the Messiah is coming, they would have never, ever desecrated God's temple that way. But they did. The money changes, they had a purpose too. They did the same thing in the Kidron Valley before. Because everybody, when they came once a year, they had to bring the temple tax. And these people came from all different places. They had different coinage. And if you start studying the Jewish history, you will find out that the Jews, they made coins. They looked like real silver, but there was only maybe 50% silver in it. But they tried to hand it over to you as a real deal. Well, when you came to the temple, the religious leaders, they were smart kids. They recognized immediately if you had a fake one. So what you did is you bought your coinage and there were money changes. They exchanged your half-worth coin into a real acceptable temple coin, which had to be pure silver, which makes me believe that when the fish went into the lake to get the temple tax coin for Peter and Jesus, how in the world did the fish know that that was a 100% pure Coin. This is a side note. Fish must be smart. Because it would not have been accepted any other way. So here are the money changers, and the money changers also moved into the courtyard. And so when Jesus goes up to the temple and he sees these guys doing commerce, he goes out, doesn't say peep, it's not, nothing is recorded. He goes out. And he makes a whip. For what? He didn't throw the money changers out with a whip, nor did he use the whip against the people. But the oxen and the sheep, he drove out the animals with it. 
And then he went over to the money changers and he changed the tables over and said, get out of here. This house was built for a purpose. And the purpose is that my people can come together and worship God and pray to God. Remember the prayer Solomon prayed when he uh, initiated the first temple? And you could say, well, but this was Herod's temple. This was not the Solomonic temple. This was the second temple. It's true, but how many of you know, if you dedicate something to the Lord, you better use it for the Lord. So Jesus goes in and he throws them all out. Take these things away in verse 16. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Well, I would like to take that first and put that in some churches by the entrance. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And listen, the Jewish respond. Rather than saying, we are so sorry, we just got kind of cut up and we moved a little bit closer for convenience. There's no such word. They challenge him. And they say to him, so, what sign do you show us since you do these things? They have no clue. He just showed them a sign. He just showed them a sign, but they did not know. And Jesus makes this incredible statement. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. At that time when he said it, nobody had a clue what he was saying. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And John inserts this. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. What is that sign which Jesus gave him? He didn't do anything at that time. At that time, he just told them, I'm going to tear these things down, and obviously spoke prophetically, but in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is pointing towards a very significant transformation that will take place. Something, by the way, which the church still struggles today to fully comprehend and live accordingly. There is no such thing as a temple any longer that is necessary, that is built with human hands. When Jesus rose from the dead, what happened? What happened? He fulfilled what he just said. He fulfilled what he just said. They were looking for him and wanted to deny that he ever was raised. But they obviously couldn't because he showed up. He had, a, he had a bad habit. He showed up every time when these disciples gathered together. He showed up in the middle of nowhere. He just, boom, here he is. They couldn't deny it. And then the apostle Paul to the church of Corinth in the letter, he's giving us the insight that is for you and me the most important thing to grasp when it comes to that sign. Do you not know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? How many of you know that? Don't you know you are the temple of the living God? If you have embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he raised you up to a new life and the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are the temple of the living God. Wow. The question is, 
How do you keep it? Are you making a temple of merchandise or you are going to have that temple praising God? It's a house of prayer. This temple is a house of prayer. Where we communicate with God. How many of you know? You cannot communicate with God if the Holy Spirit does not open up the communication. How could we pray? We don't even know what to pray, the Bible says. But the Holy Spirit makes intercession to us. When we are dead in trespass and sin, you can't communicate with God. Try that once with a cell phone when the battery is dead. And you punch numbers. I don't know why that thing is not working. It's dead. This is like with dead bodies. People who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You can cry as long as you want. It's dead. It takes the quickening of the Holy Spirit that raises your spirit up and makes your spirit come alive. And then you have open communication to God the Father once again. That started in the Garden of Eden. Why do you think Adam could not talk to God? Why do you think God initiated after he fell the conversation? Adam was dead. He lost communication with God. But then when we become born again, that communication gets opened up again. Sometimes we call it prayers. That's what it is. Talking to God. And he's never busy, by the way. He takes your call anytime. Anytime. In the sixth chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians, we read later on, Paul said again, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own you want to read, uh, underline that in your Bible and read it daily? Listen, we are not our own. We have been purchased, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We don't belong to ourselves. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Or if God would say, like the religious people said to Jesus, so what sign do you show us? People could say in the world, well, you say you're a Christian. What sign do you show me? What sign do you show me? You know, it's one thing to call yourself a Christian. It's another thing to be in a dark world where you have to prove to non-believers, to atheists, to enemies that the spirit of the living God lives in you. What sign? What if somebody would challenge you like this? You know, all day you are... People say, oh, I heard you're going to church on Sunday. Where? Don't mention us. What sign do we show to the people out there? Jesus said, in three days, I tear this down. In three days, I raise it up. What sign? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is in us. And one of the first signs the Holy Spirit will work through you and me is that we love one another, and we love the people in the world no matter how bad they are. I don't want to do that. Then what sign are you going to show to the world? It's a legitimate question. What sign? My heart's desire for all of you is that you have a sign everywhere you go where the Holy Spirit works to you that people do not have to question that you are a follower of Jesus. They know it. Not by you saying it. Just forget saying it. Just do it. Be different. Just 
do it. Don't tell the people. People are so tired of us telling them that we are Christians, and then we live like pagans. Just live it. You say, I can't do it. Well, there are two reasons why you can't do it, if you tell me you can't do it. Either you need to examine yourself so whether you are in the faith or not. That would be one. Or the other one is, you don't trust God that he will do what he says he does. You don't have to do it. You have to surrender to the Lord. He'll do it to you. We are his workmanship, created for good works according to his will. We are his workmanship. He does it, not us. When you try to play God, that looks ugly. It really does. Don't go there. So what, what sign do we show to this world? I think for you and me, it's a reminder that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the new wine was poured into you and me. That new wine. And that new wine will make all the difference. We can't claim in the world that we have a resurrection life when it's not shown. That's what the resurrection is all about. New life. So my challenge to all of you this morning is pretty simple. Don't go out there and do signs and wonders because you can't. Just let him use you as a sign that points to somebody a lot more significant than you and I are. That's Jesus Christ. That's our point. Tell it to everyone by the way you treat them, by the way you love them, by the way you care for them. Show it to them. They don't want to know. That's none of my business. I just go and tell them. I told some of you this morning. First nurse that saw me on Friday, I told her about God, and she was gone. She never showed up. She must have had an experience somewhere, but I was so glad I could tell her. It doesn't matter. How many of you know, when you speak about God, and what he has done in your life, and the person runs, they can run as fast as they want. God goes right with them. They can't hide from him. It hunts them. It hunts them for weeks. And, and you don't have to go, yeah, good, she feels bad. No, Lord, go get her. It's a soul. Whatever it is, it's a soul for which God died. We are here to populate heaven, not to populate hell. We're here to make a difference. We're here to tell the people about Jesus. And this is your opportunity. What sign? You don't have to explain the resurrection. They need to experience the resurrection. That's so much different. You know, you can't explain the resurrection. Each one of us had a different experience when we came to the Lord. But you know what? When you came to the Lord, you got resurrected. And one day we will spend eternity with Jesus. These early signs and wonders Jesus did, they all pointed right to the end. What he's going to do, right to the end. And by the way, the wedding was no coincidence. Who do you think our bridegroom is? And who are we? We are the bride of Christ. And how many of you are glad that he never runs out of the Holy Spirit? He never runs out. There's plenty of wine to be had for his people. Holy Spirit, there's plenty there for all of us. One day we will attend a wedding and Jesus will present his pride to the Father and he will bring glory and honor to him. 
what we go through it right now is just to make our, ourselves look better when we get there. Spartan wrinkles need to go. Impurities need to go. When he presents the pride, it will be without spot or wrinkles because of his work. Let us be a part of that. Bow your heads, would you? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. You are so good to us. We open your book so many times, and it's tough sometimes for us to understand. But yes, everything is significant. But the most significant thing, Father, is that we know your son, Jesus. And through him, we got to know you. And through it, we have access into the throne room of grace. We can come and we can talk to you. Our temple is the temple of the Holy Spirit, a house of prayer where we can communicate with you, where we can lift up your name and tell the world about your faithfulness and your awesomeness. Lord, may we can live it in a world that so desperately needs you. May we never, ever look for a savior in this world. We have him living in us. May we always understand that you are it. And one day we will be with you in your kingdom. And what a day that will be. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people can say, Amen. Amen.